0: Alright, see, I, oh, I close my eyes and I open, and there's already more people here, so it, they'll just keep coming. Um, Alright, so what we are going to do, uh, hope, I know a lot of you have, I have right here the results, 29 people participated, so that's pretty good, we got a good little survey, but we took a survey of the state of theology that was offered by Ligonier Ministries just to see whether or not I needed to quit my job now or later. And you guys did pretty good. Pretty good. I was rather impressed, so I'll stick around for a little while and spare you having to uh, have Sam do this. So, um, but we're going to go through these questions. Uh, Most of them, everyone was right on point with their responses. Some of them, I think, just because of, Some wording maybe was a little confusing. Uh, But there are a few that we need to camp out on for a little bit longer and gain some understanding. But when compared, we should be thankful. If you compare to the averages that Ligonier has put out in terms of where everyone is, like this is sort of the average Christian answering their questions. And RBC is like up here. So that's good stuff. Uh, I was happy about that. Nevertheless, we're going to uh, spend some time working through these questions (coughs) and hopefully uh, clarifying in a few areas where maybe we don't have a full understanding and uh, just do some good theological work. Now, some of these are more uh, cultural even. There's a few questions about how the Bible responds to specific cultural issues as well. And so uh, we'll have a good mix of things over the next few months. So, well done on the survey. I had a little sigh of relief when the results started coming in. And uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time on this. So, from the jump, we start off with questions about God, His nature, His character, um, who He is, how He is. And, uh, and so we're going to spend a few weeks uh, on what is properly called, theologically, the doctrine of God. Um, and uh, if you've been here for some years, we've we've done these sorts of things several times. Uh, we've spent time in our confession of faith on the doctrine of God in chapter two, uh, and we've done various other studies. I think when Sunday school was cut in 2020, we were working through uh, the attributes of God. I think was the study that was going on there. Um, so in some ways, we'll we'll pick up with that. Um, but the first, uh, the very first. Question that was raised on the survey, uh, true or false question, God is a perfect being and cannot make mistakes. Is that true or false? True, yes. Hopefully, uh, we could all say that is true. God is a perfect being and cannot make mistakes. So, um, before we sort of dive into that, though, I think we need to. Um, back up a little bit and think more about what gets us to the perfection of God. And, uh, and so, uh, how is it that God is perfect? How do we determine that? And we need to begin by thinking through the self-existence of God. The fact that God is in and of Himself. That's how the confessions all explain it or the independence of God, or if you want the sort of fancy theological Latin term, the aseity of God. Uh, Ase means for or from himself. So his himselfness, if you will. If you really want to get philosophical. Um, So there's all these different terms, but they all mean the same thing. And they all mean that God is self-existing. And that's really important for us to understand as we move toward this idea of God's perfection because we have to figure out how it is that we define what is perfect. And who gets to define that? Well, up front, hopefully we can conclude that the one who is self-existing is the one who gets to define what is perfect. Uh, But we need to first lay down the foundation that God is indeed self-existing. The aseity of God. So, what does this mean? This idea of self-existence. It means that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. And yet, He has created everything to bring glory to Him. All of us and all of creation. And when we think of creation, I think in our minds we definitely think of everything on the earth. But we're talking about all of creation the entire universe and the galaxies beyond galaxies that have yet to be discovered, and whatever other, other life forms may or may not exist. That's a whole nother class that we can talk about sometimes. <laughs> so God has created all of this because he wanted to, simply. And why did he want to? He wanted to, that all of it could exist to bring him great glory and to bring him joy. Uh, if you think of, <coughs> remember in Job, at the end of Job, after he's spent all these chapters lamenting his life and how terrible things are, and, and certainly I'm not bashing Job. I think I probably would have been far worse than he was in his complaints before God. But then God tells him to gird up his loins because he's about to get punched. And he does. And then <coughs> in Job 41, God comes to Job and he says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God does not need anything at all outside of himself. It all exists in his care. And the Bible very clearly speaks of this attribute. So we're going to look at a few texts uh, just to get our minds uh, set on this, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it a bit more theologically. So Let's go first to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. And what's going on in Acts 17? Who can tell us? What's the big event in Acts chapter 17? Yep, Paul is publicly preaching. He is in the Areopagus. So he is entering into the octagon, if you will, of ideas. He's there in the battlefield of ideas with all of the philosophers of the day. The, uh, the sophists, those who would get up and give grand speeches for money. Uh, the the men who thought they were learned and they wanted to challenge each other's ideas. If you've ever read any of Plato's dialogues, you sort of get a an idea of what that would have been like. They all sort of sit around and toss questions back and forth at each other. To, uh, to In their minds, they're trying to arrive at what is true. And so Paul enters into this world and says... I will tell you what is true. And remember, he's walking along and he's seeing all, they, they had all sorts of different statues and idols and all these things because it was sort of this idea that whoever God is, we want to appease him. And so we're going to appease him by having every sort of religious or philosophical icon that we can just to make sure that we have the right one. And even in the middle of all of that, they wanted to be super sure that they had all their bases covered, so they had the altar to the unknown God. And Paul, being the genius that he was, he came and he said, I even see that you have something to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the God that is yet unknown to you. And then he proclaims the Gospel and even masterfully uses their own poetry and their own philosophy to get there. So... That's what's going on in Acts 17. He's talking to the Athenians in the Areopagus. And here's what he says. uh, Someone read for us. Verses 24 through 28. Nice and loud so we can all hear. Great, thank you. So someone give us a summary of what Paul is saying here. Okay, good. That's a very good summary. God does not need us, but we need him. And why is it that God does not need us? He is self-sufficient, He is who He is, and all that is was created by Him, it was appointed by Him, it is allotted by Him, and so if God were to need anything, it is already there at His disposal, and yet He does not need it, because unlike anything else, unlike anything that we can do, He is able to create it. And what's the theological term that we use talking about what God creates? It's a Latin theological term. Say it, Josie. You just were mouthing it, I think. Yes, ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. So this is what God does in creation. He he creates out of nothing. Now, even... Our greatest inventors have never created something out of nothing. It's not possible. Uh, There's always some substance that is necessary in order to create in our earthly realm. But God has created all things ex nihilo. And so he has no need of anything because he can just speak it into existence, as we see all through the beginning chapters of Genesis, the beginning chapters of the Bible. And so Paul is masterfully presenting to them, you are talking about all of these gods and all that they can do or what they might be able to do, but I am telling you of the God, the God of the universe who has created all things out of nothing. He has no need of you. You are in desperate need of Him. And He has determined what is and what will be and how it all will be. I love that. He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He even has determined where you will live. So thank God, literally, that he has determined that you are in Rincon, Georgia in January and there's no snow on the ground. It's a beautiful thing. You should be very, very thankful for that. Trust me, I've lived in it. Talk to those from what? You don't have to shovel humidity. humidity. That's exactly right. If you're from Iowa, yeah, or if you've spent time in places like, I don't know, Detroit, things like that. Uh, Where? Oh, the Schraders. Oh, my goodness. Wisconsin, Wisconsin. All of these places, you will be very thankful for the fact that God has determined the allotted boundaries for your dwelling place to be where they are, right? But that is an amazing thought, isn't it? That even something that we put a lot of thought and energy into, that we, (coughs) you know, and we should, we should use the wisdom that God has given us in working these things out and making these determinations for ourselves, for our families, Uh, but... At the end of the day, we recognize that God has determined these things. And so what seems to be things that we're doing on our own whims, we must conclude from what we see in Scripture, that God has directed those very steps and has brought those things about. Why? Ultimately, he tells us, I love this, that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him, because in him we live and move and have our being we are indeed His offspring. That God has positioned all things to exist in such a way that bring Him the greatest glory. And one of the things that brings God the greatest glory is that we would come to know and trust and love Him and abide in Him. And so the great end of all things is His glory. And how do we get there? We get there by abiding in Him, communing with Him, and, and that's really important as we start to talk about these things, that we not let sort of the theological realities become the end, right? We could spend all of our time talking about God's perfection, God being a perfect being, God being without mistake, and that's important. We need to know that. We need to understand and embrace that. However, if that's where we end and that doesn't lead us further to commune with God, then it's just it's sort of the same as what the Athenians were doing. We're just having a philosophical discourse at that point. It's really not all that meaningful in the long run. So this is really important, the way that Paul presents this, because it's not just theological in his approach. It's imminently practical. It's eminently practical because it leads us to commune with our God. All right, let's look at Psalm 50, verses 8 through 15. Someone read those for us. Psalm 50, verses 8 through 15. Great, thank you. All right, same thing. Someone give us a summary here. What is God saying here in Psalm 50? I have no lack of need whatsoever. And I love what he says. Even if I did, what does he say? I wouldn't tell you. because why, right? You think of a parent with their child, right? Even, even if something came up and you didn't know about, it, I'm not going to tell you, what are you going to do about it? You're like six years old. You can't do anything, right? It's that same mentality. Say, so even if I was hungry, why am I going to tell you? You can't provide for me, but nevertheless, it's all mine. I don't lack at all, and not only do I not lack, I know all. Right? We, have, we have an understanding here of His omniscience, that He knows all things. He knows the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. That's amazing. Have you ever just gone somewhere in nature and just sort of sat there and contemplated all of the life around you? Maybe if you're a hunter or something, you've spent time in the woods, you just sit there and think... And it's not just the big animals that you want to see. It's all the things. It's the life coursing through the plants and the trees and the, 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 uh, the bugs on the ground, the ones you can see and the ones that you can't. It's the, the, the microscopic things in the air that you breathe. All of this is coursing with life. And God says, it all belongs to me. I know all of it. I have all of it in view at all times. I have a count of all of it. And marvelously, he's holding it all together because if for one second he stopped, it would all fall apart. It's an amazing reality. It's, it's nearly uh, impossible to comprehend in our minds that that's even the case, that this is what God is and what God is doing. It's a, it's a beautiful reality. He is Lacking no need whatsoever because it is all His. He created it from nothing. Good. And that's uh, our confession actually addresses that. It talks about the incomprehensibility of God. That it's interesting. In in one sense, God is, uh, we talk about God's simplicity, that God is simple. He's a simple being. He's not made up of a bunch of different parts, like a recipe where you throw it all together and make the final product. He's simple. But, at the same time, God is incomprehensible because of His vastness. Just just think of just God's glory in itself. I dare you to try to define the glory of God. We talk about it. We talk about achieving that or, or reaching for that. But when you try to define it, you, uh, you are going to have a more difficult time getting there. And so God is, in that sense, incomprehensible to even consider... The fact Uh, today, as we get into our sermon, we'll think about Abraham being promised by God that his offspring will be as vast as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. Well, only God could even say that because only God knows how many grains of sand are in the sea. Every one of them, one of them is bad enough. You get it in your shoe or whatever; it get between your toes and you can't wash it out, or it's in the carpet in your car and it will never vacuum it. It's horrible. But God knows how many there are, right? It's, it's, a, it's unfathomable that this is all contained within the mind of God. Let's skip over to Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Now, this is a lengthy section. I'll read it unless someone, someone want a long reading section for us? All right, I'll do it. Psalm, uh, excuse me, not Psalm, Isaiah 40, <coughs> beginning in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The greatness of God, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like the fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that would not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has... Their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the earth, the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All right. What is the Lord saying here? What's the point here? Yes, (laughs) good. God is great. God is magnificent. God is is powerful, right? So many of God's attributes laid out for us here. But one thing that really comes to light is this idea of the self-existence of God. I love when he starts asking all these questions. Who has done all of these things? Who has marked the boundaries of the earth? Who has marked the boundaries of the universe? Who has weighed in the scales, the mountains, and the hills? Right? He could go on and on, and it's like what he does with Job. Yeah. Yes, in his hand, right? And, and it's all as nothing. It's so small and insignificant compared to His greatness. It has nothing. Yeah, the infinity of it all, right? So the, the relationship between God and His creation is like no other. And so Isaiah goes into the sovereignty of God. He talks about the eternality of God. He talks of the unfathomable understanding of God with the weakness of man. Right. And, and really... In so many ways, this is encouraging to me because you could stop and think, you know, it's easy for us to just even think, okay, we just turned over a new year and we're thinking about the past year and nobody even, it's like you have to spit after you say 2020 now, uh, right? It's, it's, it's troubling to us, the things that, as we think about them, <laughs> and yet, <clears throat> excuse me, all, all of this is telling us that This is, one, all in the hands of God, but two, it says all the nations are as nothing before Him. They are counted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, this isn't saying that God doesn't care, but it's saying compared to who He is and His greatness and His magnificence and His eternality, they are just little things. They're big things to us because we're living in the moment. But to God, this is... This is just a small thing on the, the grand scale of eternity. That's encouraging to me. Nations will rise up and fall down, right? I, I think, I think as, as we consider this, the, the self-existence of God, that this should encourage us. I know a lot of Christians seem very discouraged right now by the circumstances of life, by the circumstances of culture, But whatever that brings about and how that comes about, depending on what your makeup is, depending on what you pay attention to and care about more than this or that. But at the end of the day, we can come back to this, that God is self-existent, that God holds it all together according to his purposes. And I can be encouraged that this ebb and flow of rising up and bringing down is all a part of his grand design to bring glory to himself and to Bring the church to a place where we are all the more walking faithfully with Him as His bride. That He will bring to the bridegroom in presented in absolute perfection. We need this bigger picture of God. That's why these things are important. That we think about this. Because as we live and breathe and have our being, as Paul said in Acts 17... That we're doing so with an understanding that today may be tough, but in the grand scheme of it all, today doesn't matter in the way that eternity matters. Right? Because God is doing all of this. His purposes, not mine. Even though we all wish certain things, right? God has His reasons. And so. These are the kinds of things, and we'll see this who knows when down the road in Romans chapter 11. Those, Paul there has dealt at that point with the law and the gospel and God's saving purposes and his sovereign work to bring man to himself, and he is just overcome. And, and any time we think about the purposes of God and the work of God, this should bring us to the same place that Paul was at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him? Are all things glory be to Him forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology, that's praise that Paul is giving to God because he's considered all that God is and all that he has done. And the only thing he's left to do is to sing the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's all in the wisdom of God. And I love, I love you know, we, talk, we use that phrase when we're talking about some minor circumstance in life, right? Just a drop in the bucket. But what does it say of God? The nations are a drop in the bucket, right? these massive entities that are so powerful, and we have all uh, in our minds that this is what the world is about, that nations are rivaling for power. Ah, it's just a drop in the bucket. What's that? Dust on the scales, scales. yeah. He can blow it away in an instant. (laughs) So, we have this self-existent God, and He's not only independent in Himself, but He also causes everything to depend on Him, and that's really what Isaiah is getting after. So not only do we have God self-existing, the aseity of God, but now we have a a dependence. And why is that important? Because if you think of something like the idea of of deism, this really counters the idea of deism. What is deism? Someone tell us. And so if you think of uh, all of creation, it's sort of as though we're like in a snow globe, if you will. God sort of put all the pieces in place and shook it up and set it down. So he's just sort of sitting back and watching it happen now, right? That's the God of deism. God created it, but now he's uninterested and everything is sort of unaffected. Excuse me. What's that? no No, there is no hope. There's no hope. There's no one to depend upon, right? Also, though, it gives no explanation to anything, right? That we just sort of... Listen... I hope we know ourselves enough, just as individuals, let alone the rest of the world, to know that if God just got it started, that we wouldn't have made it to 2021. Right? <laughs> we, you could see from the very beginning, you got a brother killing his brother. Well, half the population is gone already. Right? So <laughs> what are we going to do now? So <clears throat> God has created not only in and of himself from nothing, But he's made everything to depend on him. Counter to the idea of something like the God of deism. That God is just there watching it happen. Like it's a big movie for him. Let's see what the stupid humans are going to do today. (laughs) Right? No, he's intimately involved. And no one would argue that a dependent God would have need outside of himself. To say otherwise is completely contrary to the reality of his dependence. So if the world created God then he would need that world because the world was his creator. It's like saying a child has a need of his mother because he's come from his mother and would not have existed otherwise. We understand that. What's amazing about the God of the Bible is that he is entirely self-existent and he chose to create... And not only to create, but then to enter into a previously non-existing world to establish covenantal relationships of freedom and love with his creation. That's phenomenal. He created it out of nothing and then entered into it so that we could have the privilege to have a relationship with him. And so when God says to Moses, I am who I am, what else is he going to say? What else could he say? That carries with it an assurance that God was not dependent upon creation. I am. Who is God? He's the great I am. <coughs> now you know why everyone was a little upset with Jesus when he said the same thing, right? <coughs> this is a this is in clear contrast to think of uh if you've ever studied like not just the greek gods but even think of the egyptian pantheon how many gods were there well everyone had their own god really right so you have this pantheon of gods so the egyptians are depending on their statues They're images of something. If you've ever been to or seen pictures of a place like India, you see all over the place. You walk around, there's these statues. There's shrines. If they have a lot of money, they build these big, amazing sort of mausoleums with their, their statue inside, and they bring food and burn incense and all this stuff to these things. And they're all over the place, just like Paul was seeing in the Areopagus. And so when we read the Bible, we see something completely contrary to all of that. They're depending on these things to do something, but God's people are assured that He was, that He is, and that He always will be. That He is sovereign, that He is with us, that we can depend on Him. Why can we depend on God? Because God depends on nothing and nobody. Right? Why? So we we have a certain level of dependence on one another, right, in our relationships, and depending on how those relationships play out, especially like a child with a parent, those sorts of things, there is a level of dependence there, right? However, at some level, that dependence breaks down because we can't be everything for everyone that is dependent upon us. And even if we try, we will fail. And yet God can be the one we depend on because He depends on no one. He has no need and therefore can do all that is necessary and give all that is necessary. So we're assured that nothing will keep Him from being there for us. That's why the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. He can because He's self existence and in need of nothing. So, let me, I'll pause there, any comments I've been running? It's been a while since I've been doing this, so you got me fired up. Yeah, amen. This idea that, why are, you know, you almost get a sense, like the Jews would think, why, how long do we have to keep doing this? Uh, imagine being a priest. How many, how many throats are you slashing on animals before you get to a place where you say, uh, I would like to move on. I'm going to open a corner store or something. This is a little much, <laughs> right? Right. And that's, remember, he says not, I mean, there's not enough animals that could be sacrificed. There's not enough wood in Lebanon. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So <laughs> all of these, all of this, and, and David's doing the exact right thing to bring us to think about Christ in the midst of all of this, the significance. Christ coming into the world and doing what he has done on our behalf. Now, Jesus himself identifies his own attribute of self-existence, right? Now, in one sense, he's not dependent upon creation, just like the Father is not dependent upon creation. And when we talk about God's life, we're, we're using human language to describe something that is entirely, it's is not entirely accurate because we don't have the language to be able to describe it. Um, even the word life, if you think of the word life, that implies other things like death, for example. And life may also imply that it came into being. It, it once did not exist, but then it did. And we we can't use that language properly when speaking of God because He's he never didn't exist. but it, it, So it's more accurate to say that God is life. He's the giver of life. But nevertheless, Jesus uses this language that we might comprehend this very concept. God has always been and in his existence has no need outside of himself. And so we get this eternality. I always say, I talk to my kids about this, I can think I can comprehend on some level that things will never end, like eternal future isn't so difficult for me to at least get some grasp of, but eternal prior, yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's no, there's no word go, it just always was, that's, that's amazing. So this reality. God's self-existence, it, it puts to death this faulty idea that God created man for companionship. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about that. That God created us so that He would have friends, so that He would have companions, as if He were lonely or needy. When we get to our... What's that? Right, right, exactly. That he, he has a need within Himself. When we, when we talk more about the Trinity, we'll get into... Uh, the idea that God was complete in himself and had the relationship that he needs within himself that he is not in need of man. Now, it's, I will give the benefit of the doubt, that's a well-intentioned idea because we're trying to identify that there is a personal nature to God, that he is relational in ways, and I'll say even this, that we can read all of these and sort of get a sense that, well, we're saying God doesn't need us, we're like as nothing compared to who God is, and all, which is all good and right and true, but we can get a sense of, well, then why did He create us? Why does He care? Maybe He doesn't care. And what we see in the Scriptures is quite the opposite, that He, he does care. And not only does He care, He cares so much that He knows the number of hairs on your head, he knows how many breaths you will draw. He loves you so much that He gave of Himself for you. And that's sort of this beautiful way that this continues to progress in this story. Yes, you have this grand, magnificent, self-existent God who has no need of anyone or anything, and yet He cares about you. He loves you. So much that He ended all of these infinite sacrifices with one, and that one was in and of himself, his son. It's a beautiful, beautiful progression. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, amen. Amen. And you have uh, Jesus uses that same kind of language too, right? He looks, he's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, I tried to gather you under my wings like a mother hen with her chicks, and and yet you have despised me. But it's this, uh, even using this language of motherly affection for her children, right? that he he is so tenderly caring for his people, it's it's nearly unfathomable that we would would think that this God, self-existent, thinks about me, cares about me, loves me, sent his son to die for me. So, that being said, we're out of time. We didn't even get on to God's perfection yet. That's okay, we've got several months and 35 questions, so... If we take three weeks per one question, we'll get through maybe five or six. (laughs) Doing good. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for this time. We're grateful for Your Word and for what You are showing us again in Your Word. Lord, it's always a great joy, a great privilege of ours to consider maybe what we have considered before, maybe what we haven't, but to consider your nature, your character, your ways, your works, it's, it's so rich, it's so powerful, it's so clear in your word, and it does such great work in our hearts that we would be drawn all the more to love you, to honor you, to admire you, and to be in great awe of you. And so I pray as we looked at even with the Apostle Paul that as we've even thought of these things this morning that our time of worship today together will be a doxological worship that we will bend our knee before our God and say, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. May all praise and glory be unto you and may our hearts be ready to receive the great gift that you have prepared before us today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.